Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, if you are out and about driving around, you may have noticed the price of gas. Looks like it's varying this morning from about 154.9 in some stations in Vancouver, some others around 156, 157, others still around 161.9. And if that feels like a lot, if you feel the pain in your wallet, well, that might not be the worst of it. Dan McTagg is joining us now. He's the senior petroleum analyst at GasBuddy.com. Dan, thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. Uh, Good to be here, and good morning to you, Jill. Good morning uh, to you. I know that uh, you've been getting this question over and over again in the last uh, few days, uh, but what is it that's pushing uh, the prices up so high right now? Refineries uh, rely on natural gas to uh, drive their their production. Uh, They need natural gas to create energy, to uh, to create steam, to turn the turbines, which in turn makes it more reliable, less costly than running it uh, via electricity. Uh, thinking about a refinery, basically you're looking at a distillation unit. And all they do is uh, run high temperatures, fill it in with uh, various slates of oil, and uh, produce product at the end by uh, separating all the molecules in that uh, oil. And so, uh, you know, natural gas is extremely important to uh, being able to separate and to uh, to produce and to refine. So, with the uh, disruption, uh, the explosion that happened, I believe, on Tuesday evening uh, in Prince George, uh, you saw pretty much all of the natural gas of those three of the four Washington State refineries, and even to a larger, a smaller extent, our own Parkland refinery here in Burnaby, uh, suddenly had uh, were informed that there would be a shortage or a disruption in their supply. So they began to close or shut down units for production which in turn led to uh, a spike in prices on markets. They realized there could be a a shortage, and uh, they rose in one single day. I believe it was Wednesday afternoon, 30 cents a gallon. And that's why, uh, Jill, we saw uh, yesterday's four-cent-a-liter increase, which brought us to many stations here in Metro Van to 161.9, and again, another two-cent-a-liter increase this morning. So you're going to start to see a lot of stations at 163.9 cents a liter, which, of course, is a record here for Vancouver, and in fact, uh, of any ma- major city in uh, in uh, in North America, uh, that too is a record. Hmm. And it makes sense when you explain it like that, with the the disruption in the natural the gas supply and having to cut back. How do we know though that the companies aren't just using it? How do we know that the amount that the gas is going up is a true reflection of what they've had to do because of the disruption? Well, you you see that because the uh, markets which trade openly, uh, known as the Pacific Northwest market for gasoline, shot up. And you could actually see the numbers on the trading screens, uh, business followers, traders, uh, speculators, uh, but more importantly, those involved with uh, trying to entice other alternative forms of, ga- of, of shipments of gasoline to our region had to uh, throw up the smoke signals very quickly to tell everyone that there is a problem here. And uh, the fact is that it was passed on uh, to consumers usually within 48 hours of the uh, of the incident or the problem. That's not something we necessarily see south of the border in the United States where the problem actually exists. I mean, there there's a bit of a retention period, usually about uh, you know maybe five or six days before they start to see increases in the same way before they start to see decreases. And that's because we you know, ourselves here in Vancouver are quite vulnerable in the lower of mainland. We import uh, well over a third of our gasoline, diesel, jet fuel needs. Um, and, uh, you know, our tiny little refinery here, uh, and it is small compared to the population, uh, can't produce enough. So we have to rely on external sources, uh, Trans Mountain being the other 
uh, pipeline being the other source. And I think you've kind of answered my next question was that exact thing and that we are going to be seeing more people, especially if you live close to the border, going across the border to get gas because it is still a lot cheaper. Uh, But it's the same gas, isn't it? It pretty much is. Uh, it is very much the same spec gasoline. And uh, I'm seeing, you know, if I go to Blaine and I'm seeing 3.55 a gallon, uh, quick calculation using my, uh, you know, Canadian exchange at uh, 130.3 plus a couple pennies for your credit card company works out to about a buck 25 a liter. So I think it's a safe bet that a lot of people will be driving that way. But, you know, if you look on the Gas Buddy website, just punch in VancouverPrices.com, You'll see that while, you know, here in uh, you know, Metro, you're going to see 163.9. You know, if you head out to Langley, uh, I see the Super Save in, in Surrey is still at 145. I'm seeing a lot of stations at Alder Grove at 145. Um, you know, there's a good likelihood that you won't have to travel south of the border. You can travel, you know, further, a little further east. Uh, to get, um, you know, get your gasoline at a more competitive price. Also, because there is a big difference due to the uh, the TransLink tax, which is placed on gasoline, affecting only those areas that are served by it, a very large area, obviously. But, uh, you know, generally speaking, uh, this situation, the gulf of prices between the United States and Canada, uh, isn't as severe if you consider some of those areas further east, which uh, may only save you about 9 or 10 cents uh, a litre. Exactly, but does save you the time and uh, the gas to get there and back if you are going, well, depending on how far away you are. Um, <laughs> That's true. Uh, you know, and, but you know, here's the other factor that I think many people should consider. This is very temporary. Uh, we will be seeing prices dialed back uh, you know, several cents a litre, likely by midweek, uh, once the all-clear is given and the, uh, uh, the pipeline that was ruptured in Prince George is uh, confirmed uh, safe by regulators. Uh, we're already seeing, by the way, a, a decrease of one penny overnight. I know that's not a big deal, but it goes to show you that uh, the risk of shortage now is, is beginning to recede. And I think by Wednesday and Thursday of next week, we're going to start to see prices back down towards the mid dollar fifties at the high end. Uh, which is is amazing in itself that we're looking at uh, the mid fifties as a reprieve in this, but still a bit of good uh, news <laughs> for for drivers. Yeah, well, there's a lot that's got you there, and I got to point out that uh, you know look this information up. Uh, anybody who's enterprising, uh, Energy Information Agency every Wednesday comes out with uh, the supply and demand picture for all of the United States. The Americans are very transparent when it comes to energy, unlike Canada, which uh, tends to hide and bury the stuff or, you know, not really report it for several months, at which point it's quite irrelevant to consumers. Uh, I won't go over that argument that I tried to make as an MP many years ago, but if you look at the EIA's data, you'll see that the Pacific Northwest market, which consists of, of course, Washington, Oregon, California, uh, and Nevada, you'll find that uh, the supply picture continues to be very tight. Demand is high and supply is just only barely managing to uh, to be adequate. So that's one of the reasons why there's a big spread between the rest of the country or the rest of the continent and what we're facing here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, it's a chronic problem. I'm not sure how to resolve it unless someone's willing to uh, build some new refineries. And it certainly won't happen in Canada, given our regulatory environment, which is very hostile towards any type of uh, emissions producing plants. Uh, I don't see the situation for motorists uh, relieving, getting any relief anytime soon. And it certainly doesn't help that your provincial government here continues to add tax every April 1st, uh, which continues to uh, help uh, increase the price of fuel. Uh, no, definitely. Uh, one more question just before I let you go. Does this show yeah. us that, that we are overly vulnerable? It takes one explosion, and granted, it was a pretty big deal that there was an explosion uh, affecting the natural gas pipeline, but one yeah. one 
disruption uh, throws has this major effect. Yeah, it does. And it does have that effect because it's an important component. You, it's, it's a little bit like uh, using an analogy. You can't drive a car without gasoline or diesel. Um, you, you can push it. But if you haven't got uh, the source, the, uh, the fluid to make those refineries run. And by the way, natural gas is far cleaner than what they used to use, Pet Coke and other products which are banned in Canada. Uh, it's not likely that uh, you're going to see refineries uh, being able to run anywhere across Canada. There's only one that I know of uh, that's in the uh, Maritimes, uh, sorry, in Newfoundland, um, that is the come-by-chance refinery, which has to use heavy oil in order to uh, to run its furnaces, really, and to uh, generate uh, power electricity to, again, convert heavy oil or light oil into uh, into usable high-end products. So that's really the vulnerability for us in, in Vancouver is unlike anywhere else in Canada. Everywhere else in Canada, refineries produce more than enough gasoline and fuel to meet our needs. Here in Vancouver, we um, we painted ourselves into a corner. No refineries, only one small one, no real upgrades to that one. And, of course, uh, our population continues to grow. It's okay to rely on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, but the problem is that that's now plugged. Uh, there's no more product that can come down from Edmonton where they have a surplus of gasoline. So until someone uh, decides to send another pipeline, which would be built in two years, and I won't get into that discussion right now, uh, down from Edmonton, um, you're uh, continuing to be rather held hostage by any kind of... Uh, Uh, you know, upsets outside of our area. All right, Dan, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much. Great to chat with you this morning. Great to be here. Thanks and have a great weekend, Jill. Thanks for being with us. But when you wake up on Wednesday morning, do you think it will feel different? Will it be a whole different world because cannabis will be legal in this country? What exactly is going to change? Well, criminal lawyer Paul Doroshenko, who is with Acumen Law, is joining us on the line now to talk about what we need to know before legalization becomes an official thing. Paul, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, will it be different? Will we wake up Wednesday and uh, everything will have shifted? Well, I don't know that you can say that everything will have shifted. I mean, it's a major change in the sense that, you know, we've had a uh, hundred years of, um, of this being a criminal offense to possess this uh, item. Uh, it's something that I think is going to start a bit of a cultural change. Think of like all of the music and cultural things that we have with respect to alcohol. Uh, you know, there's songs about drinking. There's songs about what happens to you when you're drinking. There's there's art about drinking. There's there's uh, you know uh, it, it is part of our culture, uh, and I think cannabis is going to become just part of our culture, and it's going to be a you know it's going to be a change. There's no doubt about it. So come Wednesday, once it's legalized, so there'll be one store only open, though, as far as I, what, I, what I understand in BC, the Kamloops store will be up and running. So what will people do then? If, if So come Wednesday, recreational cannabis is legal. Uh, what does that mean for people who, who ingest it, who partake in that? Well, you mean to get it is going to be a problem because, the, you know, we're still going to be in this situation where, yes, there's one store, there'll be online sales. Uh, but uh, you know, the big companies that are in, you know, that intend to produce it have not been permitted to produce it yet, unless they were producing medical cannabis. So there's large growers who are about to start growing. Uh, we are going to see stores, you know, appearing all over the place. I suppose that's going to be good for uh, places where there's uh, where there's uh, vacancies of, of storefronts and things like that, if they can afford to pay the taxes, and maybe one of the few businesses that can in Vancouver, for example. Uh, the uh, you're going to be able to grow it. You can grow four plants at home, so long as it's not the plants are not in public view. 
you can have four plants per household. Uh, it's not a lot, but um, you know it's at least sort of getting things started, and that may change down the road when the uh, uh, when again our, our culture sort of becomes comfortable with the fact that we've got this product and people are using it, uh, you know, as they will. So I I, I, I guess my uh, I don't expect it to be a massive change in the sense that we're all going to be able to run out and buy some pot, <laughs> okay, because this is not going to be there. Uh, but people are not going to have to hide it. Um, you can have 30 grams on you. You're not going to have to worry about that. You're not going to have to worry about becoming a criminal just because you've got some, uh, got some cannabis at home. Uh, you mentioned uh, getting it and mm-hmm. such and, and, and that. So what do you think is going to happen, though, to the dispensaries? Because in Vancouver, there are dispensaries everywhere, some of them with business licenses, some of them without, some of them that pay fines. What happens to them? They're in a very difficult situation. I mean, I, I, I admire the dispensaries because they are, uh, and it hasn't really been acknowledged to the extent that I think it should be, but they have been really responsible for forcing legalization uh, on our governments because they they managed to to persuade local government to persuade the police to uh, permit them to exist despite the fact that it was clearly criminal for them to be trafficking in in cannabis and they did it for years and it made people comfortable with the fact that it was taking place which really facilitated this what is going to happen to them now is a is an open question i mean I think most people recognize that uh, there has to be a transfer to them being, you know, operating in a, a lawful manner, um, and I, I don't think that the police are going to be coming down and uh, and shutting them down come Thursday morning. But I think that certainly there is going to be, uh, you know, all of these dispensaries have been getting cannabis for the most part, from what I understand, completely unlawfully from grow ops that are somewhere that are completely unlawful. That will remain unlawful. You know, growing an unlicensed grow-up will remain unlawful. So they are in a, a perilous position. If they can't transfer lawfully to, uh, to being a you know, retail outlet for cannabis, and if they haven't gone through the process, made the steps, applied to the provincial government, um, you know, they could be a, a long time out of business. Uh, and you make a, an interesting point because one of the reasons for this was to get rid of the black market and to bring it I- into a legal uh, arena. But you're right. All of these dispensaries, they don't tell you where they're getting it from. But we know, everybody knows they're getting it from these grow-ups, wherever they are, that are not legal. Uh, so if, if that's not going to change, there's still this huge illegal market. Do you think there'll be a crackdown on that or, or what will be done to that? I think that the police probably have a very good idea where a lot of these grow ups are. I think a lot of them they've you know have just uh, known that they're that they were there but took no action uh, because they were supplying the dispensaries and a decision had been made not to uh, not to apply the criminal code to these dispensaries it's, you know in Vancouver and Nelson and a few other places. Uh, I think that there will be crackdowns on some of those grow ups. The issue will be whether or not they use the criminal law or they use the new provincial law to do it. Uh, there's, you know, now we have uh, we have provincial offenses that would not be a uh, criminal code offense if the police decide to employ that law. So that law comes into effect as well uh, this week, and we have almost duplicate laws federally and provincially. And if the police and the prosecution decide to proceed 
uh, under the criminal code, then those people are facing criminal charges. If they decide to proceed under the provincial legislation, then they're facing uh, provincial offenses, but not a criminal record. But it also makes it a lot easier for them to proceed because they don't have to stick to the same charter values, charter rights. Uh, the quality of the investigation doesn't have to be the same. So they can they can seize your stuff uh, and get you into uh, get you before a tribunal or court pretty quickly if they decide to proceed under the under the provincial legislation. Uh, do you think there'll be an increase? Because that's something that I, I've often wondered, and that in Vancouver especially, it's not unusual to see somebody um, smoking a joint on the street or to be even walking down the street smoking a joint, uh, to be at a beach, to be in a park. Now that it's not a criminal offense, that it's something more like a bylaw, do you think there'll be more enforcement, much like if you were smoking a cigarette or drinking a glass of wine or a beer in public, you could get a ticket? Well, it looks like... You know, my read of the legislation is that you can be walking down the street, uh, you know, this week smoking a joint in places that you uh, that you would normally have a cigarette. You can you can't be in a playground, uh, you know, but it appears you can be in a park. Uh, so it, it really um, I, I think there's going to be a lot more open uh, consumption of, of cannabis. I think there'll be people smoking and walking around. Uh, I don't know, uh, you know, how enthusiastic the non-cannabis users will be about that but you know we have to live with a whole diverse society of people with different interests and needs and desires and i suspect yes we're going to see that now locations where you can normally expect children to be um is uh, is where they're prohibited and that becomes a, a difficult thing because it's look think of that test trying to apply that test so i mean up until three o'clock on a school day you know, you might be fine. Um, <laughs> after that, you might be in a situation where you're violating the law. Uh, but I expect we will see people who are, you know, sitting down on the grass and uh, and smoking. And I, I don't think anybody's going to going to be in a position to give them any uh, give them any grief for it. All right, let's take a short break. My guest is Paul Doroshenko. He's a lawyer with Acumen. We are talking about cannabis legalization. It is coming up in just a few days. Uh, Paul Doroshenko is on the line. He's a lawyer with Acumen Law. We've also opened up the phone lines. If you have a question for Paul about cannabis legalization, you can give us a call, star 9898 or 604-280-9898. And before we go to the phone, so Paul, I know you've been very uh, active in looking at the driving aspect. What do we know now? Uh, once it's legal, Legalized uh, impaired driving. If somebody has uh, THC in their system, how, how it's being tested? I know we've talked a lot about the dragger uh, test. What is that going to look like? You know, a bunch of police departments have said they're going to hold off on purchasing the uh, the, the roadside screener, the saliva tester dragger that you just referred to, um, and they're going to rely on standardized field sobriety tests to try and identify cannabis impaired drivers. And, you know, my thinking is if they're going to, if they intend to do that at roadblocks, if they intend to pull people over and do that, uh, they're going to have a problem because the one thing standardized field sobriety tests have never been uh, equipped to do is to identify people who are impaired by cannabis. And the main reason is the, um, the there's three main portions of the test. One is horizontal gaze nystagmus, which is an involuntary twitching of the eyes when they're pushed out to the side. The other is a walk and turn, and then the uh, then there's the one-leg balance test. Those are the three main components of it. Well, there's no nystagmus caused by cannabis use, so it's only really effective with alcohol. Uh, the walk and turn, most people who have been using cannabis have fairly good balance, surprisingly. 
uh, and uh, you know similarly with the one leg stand. So um, the issue really is uh, more of a cognitive thing when it comes to cannabis use, unless you're at really really high levels, which are sort of apparent right at the start, and you don't have to go through those steps. So. It will be interesting to see because standardized field sobriety tests, which they're claiming is going to be their new tool, is not a tool really at all for this purpose. And I think they're just claiming that, knowing full well that that's the case, but just to appease the public. All right. Uh, let's go to the phones. Bob has a question on this. Bob, what's your question for Paul? And, and sorry for being slightly outside of uh, what you asked, but in Ontario, they've deliberately uh, dissolved a previous regime and set up an online-only thing. It's almost as if they're going to be using it to make a list, like tracking people on assistance, for example, or if uh, the, the police run into a situation where they have cannabis use, where Sergeant O'Malley, the OPP, is going to say, you're busted, no online account. So it, it's almost as if they've been a little bit crafty about it because they, they want to continue an enforcement uh, regime in place, even though it's going to be legalized. And I know it's a little bit outside the question, but that's always sort of piqued my curiosity ever since they dissolved what was in place and then they took government and went to this regime online only. All right, Bob, thanks for the call. And uh, Paul, I guess that is a little different. Is it Ontario, it's only online sales? Well, it's an interesting thing because your, your point about them tracking people who are on social assistance or, or EI or something like that, uh, yeah, that is frightening. Um, and to know that the government's basically tracking all of this. I mean, you've got to remember, we still have uh, provincial governments, Manitoba, Ontario, um, that seem to be more intent on, on prohibition than legalization. And uh, there's going to end up being court challenges I- inevitably. And you can still grow four plants, um, you know, if, if Ontario is prohibiting that in some manner or another, uh, then uh, you can expect that to be struck down because that's already been set in federal legislation and the the, the uh, theory of the federal legislation uh, overcoming the provincial legislation would hold there. Uh, yeah, it's, it's I mean, it's different from province to province and we're going to see some fairly ridiculous parts of their provincial legislation in different provinces are, are going to face challenges in court. We only have a couple of minutes, but you mentioned the four plants, and I was trying to get to the bottom of this this week, too. What about strata councils? Because some stratas are bringing in bylaws saying, "Uh uh-uh, no growing at all. We don't want any plants grown in the building. Uh, But the lawyer I talked to said, well, it's kind of like growing tomatoes, and there's nothing to require you to tell anybody that you're growing tomatoes. How do you see that playing out? You know, the only thing is the odor. Um, and uh, that's a it's that's a fascinating one because the strata councils have a lot of power there to to pass uh, you know strata regulations. Uh, I think it's going to be a absolute um, boom for lawyers who deal with these uh, issues in condos uh, because there's going to be tons and tons of disputes. I know that there's lots of uh, condominiums where the strata council is basically occupied by people who are completely opposed to marijuana. Um, this is uh, something that I've heard a lot in Richmond, for example, uh, and uh, I think that those issues are going to end up resolved in, uh, you know, in, in the various different tribunals and courts in our in our province and country because the, you know, we, we all have to live together in those buildings, uh, and uh, people are entitled to possess these things and are entitled by federal legislation to grow four plants. So, you know, how how are you how are you causing grief to your neighbors. And usually that's sort of the the determining factor when you're trying to resolve um, strata disputes. 
Exactly. Uh, 30 seconds, one piece of advice as we move to legalization. Yeah, don't drive if you've used cannabis uh, recently. Um, you know, give it some time for sure. We don't know how long after you have consumed it that you're still going to have measurable THC that will come up on a screener. You don't want to be in a situation where you're charged with impaired driving just as a result of using cannabis. Most people are pretty sensible, and I'm not expecting a panic. Uh, but I, I, I would like to encourage everyone to drive safely, responsibly, and uh, abide by the law. All right. Uh, very good advice. Paul, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Joe. Well, if you have been thinking about bringing a furry member of the family home from one of the various SPCA shelters in BC, today might be the day you want to get a bit more serious about that. It is the fall Head Over Tails in Love event. And joining us to talk a bit more about what's going to be happening is uh, Rachel Weist, manager of the Animal Transfer Program with the BCSBCA. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good morning. What exactly is this event? What's happening today? So we are having a 50% off adoption fee promotion for all the animals in our care right now. Currently, we have over 2,000 animals in our care who are looking for great homes. So The usual adoption matching process applies, and it's great that Hills Pet Nutrition has teamed up with us to do this. Uh, So for somebody that's been perhaps thinking about this or watching online, because you can look at all of the adoptable animals uh, online with the SBCA, and uh, they want to take advantage of this event, then what should they do? They should go into their nearest branch and ask if that animal is still available for adoption or who's available for adoption and they can fill out an adoption application and go through the adoption matching process and spend some time with that animal, get to know them one-on-one. And then if they're a great match for them, then they'll go home with them. And can that all happen in one day? It can happen in one day. We've definitely seen it happen. Some animals need a bit more time in our shelter still, so we'll have animals for adoption that maybe need a bit more medical care before they're completely clear to go to a home, but we can approve you for that adoption and we can call you when they're ready to go home. And when you say more than 2,000 animals, is there one particular type? Is it mainly dogs or cats or what are we talking about? It's actually kittens. We have over 900 kittens in care right now. Ooh, that's a lot of cats. (laughs) Yes, it is. And then we have almost 700 cats alone too. So it's, it's a lot of that number is cats and kittens. And is that is the process for cats and kittens a little easier or a bit more uh, streamlined, not as rigorous as, say, for dogs? I think in some ways it definitely is because most cats or kittens are staying inside. You're not taking them for walks. You don't have to worry about them going to, like, a cat park and seeing if they're going to be good with other cats. So there's less worries in that sense, for sure. And if somebody is looking at the dogs that are in the shelters, like you just you just mentioned a couple of the things, the factors that go into play. Um, what, what kind of things are, are you looking for as far as what makes a good home? Uh, a lot of people, especially in, in Metro Vancouver, uh, don't have their own big fenced yard. Is that, a, is that a, a block to getting a dog? I don't think so. I've definitely adopted animals out to homes that don't have fenced yards or to people that live in apartments or condos because we have so many of those now. As long as the person is dedicated to taking the animal out for exercise or, you know, if you don't have a fence yard, just taking them out on a leash in your backyard if that's where you want to take them out for bathroom breaks, that's completely fine as long as you're doing it safely. 
And is there any concern with offering this, and it's a great thing that the fees are are cut in half, they're cut by 50%. Uh, Is there any concern that maybe it it will attract people that aren't quite ready to to take that plunge and and enter into the commitment of having a pet? Uh, We've actually done promotions similar to this before over a longer period of time, and we've actually not had more animals returned back to us. So we've done studies, other groups have done studies, and we haven't seen a higher return rate of animals to do with the adoption cost. So we're not concerned about that. Our usual adoption matching process applies anyway. So even if it was a full price adoption, they're going through the same kind of process. So what uh, what are the fees then and, and what would they be today? They vary across the province. So I can't really give a set number because every region has kind of a different pricing system. But in the lower mainland, you know, an adult dog might only be about 150 to $200 now. And that includes a lot of extra things. They're up to date on shots and vaccines, free vet exams. They'll come with a bit of their Hill Science diet food and six weeks of free pet insurance or pet secure, plus some other things. But that's kind of what you're looking at. And for a kitten, it would probably be about the same price. All right. All right. And uh, and we mentioned kind of the living arrangements uh, as well. Uh, are there other animals as well? We, cats and dogs, I think, are the ones that come to mind uh, right away. But are there, are there other, uh, I mean, do people adopt rabbits or other things? Yeah. We actually have almost 150 small animals in care. So that could include rabbits, guinea pigs, bagus, rats. So there's a lot of small animals and a lot of our farm animals that are at our Good Shepherd barn in Surrey and our barn in Kelowna they're actually part of this promotion as well. And those would be looking, I would imagine, for a similar type of home, a farm-type home? Exactly, yes. Is that more difficult, finding places, farms, that are are open and have space to take the the farm animals? I think so, because if you look at a horse's lifespan, some live 15 to 30-odd years, so finding somebody that's willing to commit to an animal that come in probably due to cases of glass, you know, finding that right home that's willing to work with them still can be difficult for sure. Uh, this is something, so this promotion today, the uh, Fall Head Over Tails in Love, so is it every uh, SBCA branch in the province? That's correct. There might be a few that aren't participating if they're closed to the public for any reason, whether it's a quarantine or they just can't be open to the public on this day because of staffing. They might honour this later on, but there's no guarantee. Okay. And is it best then for somebody, should they go online first or can you just show up at the branch? You can definitely show up at the branch. There's only, I think, a couple closed across the province. So for those listening in the lower mainland, that would be our Abbotsford branch for sure. They're closed today, but all the rest of them are open. All right. Are you expecting then uh, uh, big crowds or uh, with having similar events like this in the past, does it tend to draw a lot more people? It's really hard to say. In some areas of the province, it definitely draws in a lot more people when we have the adoption promos. But with it being only one day, I I think we're expecting more people to come in today for sure. All right. And and are there concerns? I know people, uh, there is something about especially getting rescue animals and and giving this animal a second chance or or a good life and taking in a rescue animal. Do you find, though, people are sometimes reluctant or if you don't really know the history of the animal, and I guess it's more with dogs, if you don't know the history uh, concerns of not quite knowing what you're getting? There's definitely a stigma attached with rescue dogs to a certain degree. So we've seen that go down a lot over the last few years, especially more people are coming in to adopt. They feel a sense of pride in adopting, which they definitely should. We do as much research into their background as possible if an animal is surrendered by their owner. 
But if they come in as a stray, it's definitely difficult to say. So we take them in and do an assessment on them and learn as much about them as we can and give that information to the adopters. All right. Uh, great, great event for anybody who is uh, looking into that t- today. So like you said, you can go online, you can go to the branch uh, as long as it's open today. Um, and I guess it's depending on the hours. It'll be all day. Uh, do they close? Do the branches generally close at the same time? Uh, all of them are a little bit different. They're open during the core hours, usually of 12 or 1 to 4. But if you go onto our website, spca.bc.ca, you'll be able to look up all the locations on there and it'll give you what their hours are. All right. And people can definitely uh, do that. Rachel, thank you so much. Uh, I imagine it's going to be a busy day at a lot of the shelters today, but thanks so much for joining us and letting us know what's happening. Great. Thanks for having me. Have a good day.